Bible Interact is a group of Bible scholars and biblical archaeologists who promote the Hebraic nature of Scripture and view the two Testaments as one unified message. They explain how they use a first-century approach to searching the Scriptures, and they share their methods and discoveries for discussion and dialogue. They invite your comments and participation on BibleInteract.tv, where you can also find more teachings, self-study quizzes, webinars, and interviews. Greetings in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, our blessed Redeemer and soon-coming King. I'm Dr. Noreen Jacks with Bible Interact Presents, and I am delighted to be with you today on The Hebrew Nation. I am going to share with you a subject that is very dear to my heart, the power of the Holy Tongue, Lashon HaKodesh in Hebrew. Say those beautiful words with me, Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue. Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, as it is known in Hebrew. Tanakh is not a word, rather, it's an anacronym. The letters T and K stand for Tav, Nun, and Kof in Hebrew. And they represent Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. These three groupings comprise the Hebrew Scriptures, or the Jewish Bible, as it is known Hebrew was the language of the prophets, the language of divine revelation. It was the language of the temple liturgy, the language of prayer and worship. Yeshua spoke Hebrew. We are blessed that the Hebrew scriptures have been preserved for us today for our benefit. The Hebrew language presents the purest, most accurate rendering of the biblical text. Unlike translations or paraphrased editions of the scriptures, in Judaism not only are the words of scripture regarded as holy, each of the 22 consonants of the Hebrew language is also deemed sacred. Jewish tradition claims God spoke the world into existence. His first creative act And this was through the use of Hebrew words, making the sacred letters of each word the very building blocks of creation. The Hebrew letters not only have sound quality, they also have numeric value. The ancient form of Hebrew, known as Paleo-Hebrew, is comprised of pictographs, similar to hieroglyphics, which tell a story when they're joined together as words. So with the Hebrew language, we have sound, number, pictures, and stories. Now, what did Yeshua think of the Hebrew language? The Gospel writer Matthew tells us exactly what he thought about it in Matthew 5.18. He says, For truly I say to you, now note that emphatic adverb, truly, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest Hebrew letter is the Yod, which is like a comma in size and in appearance. And then the stroke is a tittle, a small distinguishing mark. In Greek, the smallest letter is the Iota, which is like the English I, but without the dot. A stroke or tittle in Greek is called karaya, which is a diacritical mark used by grammarians. It can be a little horn, a hook, or a stroke. Um, Obviously, a yod and a tittle appear to be minor details. They're small in size. But note, they were worthy of divine attention when Jesus walked this earth. 
Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law till all is accomplished. The term accomplished is genomai in Greek, meaning to come into existence, to come to pass, to appear in history. Yeshua proclaimed the eternal value of every stroke of the divinely inspired Hebrew language. We read in 1 Peter 1.25 that the word of the Lord endures forever. Martin Luther had some interesting things to say about the Hebrew language. Quote, Hebrew drinks from the spring, the Greeks from the stream that flows from it, speaking of a lesser tributary, and the Latins or the Romans from a downstream pool, or as some translate it as a downstream puddle. So it makes you wonder what Martin Luther would think of some of our modern-day paraphrases and translations. It has also been said that studying the Bible in any language other than the original Hebrew and Greek, which was the language of the New Testament, is akin to communicating with God through a third person. Personally, I want to communicate with God as intimately as possible, and that is one reason why I want to learn as much Hebrew as I possibly can. Another scholar compared translated versions of the Bible to a groom kissing his bride through a veil. Now that certainly does not sound intimate, does it? It's fun to watch for English cognates that are derived from the Hebrew and, and from the Greek language as well. For example, in Hebrew, the term amen, uh, did you realize that amen is a Hebrew word? It's amen the world over. So, And it typically means it is so or so be it. It's often translated as truly or verily. And it's emphatic. And hallelujah is another Hebrew word that simply means praise Yah. Now the words aleph and bet the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet uh, are very interesting. You see, Hebrew is the parent language of the Greek terms alpha and beta, A and B, and our English term alphabet. Remember how Yeshua declared himself to be the alpha and the omega in Greek. Now, perhaps he spoke these letters in Hebrew, as some claim he did, in which case he would have said, I am the Aleph and the Tav. Now, Alpha and Omega and Aleph and Tav are the first and the last letters of the Greek and Hebrew alphabets, indicating that Yeshua is the beginning and the end of all things. Now, without the simple knowledge of knowing what those Hebrew and Greek terms mean, one could totally misunderstand what Yeshua was saying and not grasp the, grasp the essence of his message. Now, Aleph and Beit are the two letters that comprise the word Father, read right to left. And in the Paleo-Hebrew uh, pictographic form of the language, we, we see a story developing as we read the pictures. For example, the Aleph, the A, in the ancient pictographic form of the letter is an ox head which depicts strength. The bait, or the B, in the pictographic form is a house, speaking of, uh, or perhaps the blueprint of a tent might accurately describe it more accurately. So now let's read this pictograph from right to left, and you will see that Hebrew is a very descriptive language. The term in Hebrew, Av, means tent pole, which is the strength of the house or the strength of the family. We get this from the picture. 
that we read. Now, Aleph Beit also has come to mean the term father, pronounced Av. The B is pronounced like a V in this word. So this is fascinating to me. The idea is that God is the tent pole of the universe, the one holding all things together, just as the Father is the support system of the house. Colossians one seventeen says, "This he he is before all things, and in him all things hold together." This, of course, speaks of Yeshua, also because the Father and the Son are one. Now I would like to talk to you about Hebrew literary devices that yield amazing revelation that is simply not obvious in other translations of the scriptures. Talking about things like grammar and syntax, which is word order, repetition, root words, and of course Hebrew culture, and all of this shows emphasis to gain the reader's attention and to keep the reader's interest. Now, this, these Hebrew literary devices provide us with exegetical insight. Exegesis is a, a Greek word meaning to lead out of. In other words, taking out of scripture. I like to refer to exegesis as squeezing the scriptures like a sponge, or perhaps a word or a phrase, getting everything I can out of it. And this is done through grammar, syntax, analytic study, hermeneutical interpretation, and personal application, of course. Exegetical insight is the opposite of asegetical methods, which means to lead into. Asegetical methods are generally considered an unscholarly approach. Um, reading into scripture what may or may not be there, sometimes at the risk of heresy, God forbid. We are warned against this very thing in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. We must study to show ourselves approved. Second Timothy 2.15 exhorts us to do that very thing. We have the Apostle Paul in this passage exhorting Timothy to study. It says to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Word studies from the original tongues provide linguistic, cultural, and spiritual insight. Let me share with you one of my favorite Hebrew words. It is moed, M-O apostrophe E-D. This term means appointed feast, a set time, a set place, or meeting. It's an unchangeable time that has been set in the heavens, literally, by Almighty God. The feasts of the Lord were set according to the first appearance of the new moon every month. In fact, we read about uh, the appointed time in Genesis 18:14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord at this time, Moed? I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah or Sarah her had a miraculous conception of Isaac, which occurred at an unalterable time, a divinely appointed time set by God 
and it didn't occur until 25 years after the initial promise was given to Abraham. Psalm 104.19 also mentions this word. God made the moon for the seasons, for the moedim, which is the masculine plural form of the term. Now the moon established the first day of the month. How else could the people honor the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day of rest, or the annual festival days if they did not know the first day of the month? Well, God established the monthly festival known as Rosh Chodesh in the scripture, meaning new moon, new month, or the first of the month. This feast was established by the confirmed sighting of the first sliver of the new moon, obviously an unchangeable event in the heavens orchestrated by Almighty God. Well, I was very, very excited and very blessed one day when I came to realize that Moed also pertains to the migration of birds, God's sovereignly appointed time for instinctive migration. Jeremiah 8 verse 7 records this word. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons, her moedim, the specific God-appointed time. And the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. And what a tragedy that was for the nation of Israel. There's a personal application right here for all of us. Weekly worship is a time established in the heavens. The Hebrew term moed reminds me that worship should be as instinctive to believers as migration is to birds. I have another very interesting phrase that I would like to share with you. It is karat brit, which translates to make a covenant. The phrase would be better translated to cut a covenant. We read this phrase in Genesis 15, verses 9 and 10. Yahweh said to Abraham, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, moving down in that passage to verse 18, we read, On that day the Lord made a covenant, or cut a covenant, with Avram. This was before his name was changed to Avraham. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So we see that the Avrahamic covenant involved the shedding of blood. There's another covenant I want to discuss with you now. And uh, this is in 1 Samuel 18, verses 3 and 4, the covenant between Jonathan and David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword, his bow, and his belt. Covenants were normally made between two enemies. Abraham and God were enemies until they cut covenant. The book of James refers to Abraham as friend of God. What What a title to have. What a privilege to have such a title. This is in James 2, 23. David and Jonathan were best friends. Why did they have to cut covenant? Well, Jonathan was the crown prince of Israel, the next in line for the throne. 
Yet he surrendered his royal robe, his armor, his sword, his bow, his belt, and even his throne to David. Surrendering one's weapons was a component of traditional covenantal protocol. Covenant partners made themselves vulnerable as they removed their weapons. It was also a promise to defend each other, even unto death, if necessary. Now, why did Jonathan do this? Obviously, he recognized the powerful anointing of God upon David to be the next king of Israel. And such an event demanded a formal covenant. The question is, was this a bloody covenant? Was there a blood sacrifice involved? I heard a pastor speak on this passage one day, and he said, We have no evidence from Scripture that this was a blood covenant. Well, I had a feeling it had to be, and I looked up the Hebrew, and sure enough, there was a blood sacrifice involved, because the Hebrew translation reads karat, which means to cut, destroy, kill. This is a very strong indication that there was indeed a blood sacrifice. The Hebrew scriptures then may be the origin of the phrase to cut a deal. The blood sealed the deal, the blood sealed the covenant in antiquity. Or we could say the deal was signed in blood. Native American blood brothers had a similar ritual. In fact, this ritual was common universally, which I speak of in my um, series, The Universal Threshold Covenant. The blood also meant that death would come to a partner who would break the covenant. Now I want to talk to you about a remarkable man by the name of Elisar ben Yehuda, who revived the Hebrew tongue. This gentleman was born in Russia in 1858. He had a fanatical zeal to restore the dead language of Hebrew. After moving his family to Israel, he published a Hebrew newspaper. We are told that he worked tirelessly 18 hours a day for 41 years to accomplish his most worthy goal. He published. He taught courses in Hebrew, and he published the very first modern Hebrew dictionary and created new words for the modern age, 17 volumes in all. Ben Yehuda faced serious illness, a tragic death of his first wife, persecution from Orthodox Jews who deemed the Hebrew tongue too holy to be spoken in everyday life, and he was even charged with conspiracy to revolt which caused him to be imprisoned by the Ottoman Turks for a whole year. The charge, tragically, came from Orthodox fanatics. Ben Yehuda raised the first Hebrew-speaking children in 1,700 years. He had 11 children in all by two wives. He married his sister-in-law following his wife's death, and we're told that his second wife became his biggest supporter, she learned Hebrew, she became a reporter for his newspaper, and later became the editor. Only Hebrew was spoken in Ben Yehuda's home. Every morning, when he sent his children out to play in the streets of Jerusalem, he instructed them to speak Hebrew and Hebrew only to their playmates. Well, before his death, every Jew in the land spoke Hebrew as his primary language. We can say that the restoration of Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, was truly miraculous. 
God had a plan to restore the language and the land to his people, and he has a plan to restore his people to him. Ben Yehuda died while working on the Hebrew term nefesh, meaning soul. We can honestly say that he put his heart and his soul into his work, leaving a lasting legacy of Lashon HaKodesh for all who followed. Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem is named in his honor. Perhaps you have been on this street. If not, next time you go to Israel, I suggest you take a little stroll down this street and think about the marvelous testimony of bringing that he has for bringing the Hebrew language back. Well, I want to talk to you in these closing moments about my Hebrew testimony. I had a dream. Does God still speak to his people in dreams? Well, I believe he can, and I believe he certainly does, and I believe he spoke to me in a dream. In my dream, I was writing Hebrew words on the board while teaching a class. Now, mind you, I was not copying them or drawing them as one tends to do while first learning the language, first learning the alphabet. But in my dream, I also knew how to pronounce the words. They were coming from within me. They were not coming from my Jewish neighbor, who I used to ask questions of periodically concerning pronunciation and definitions of Hebrew terms. When I awoke from my dream, I had the most intense desire to study Hebrew. And the funny thing is, I had never had that desire before. It wasn't something I really thought about. And I promised the Lord that I would study Hebrew if he would make it possible. Less than one minute later, I was on my computer, hoping to find an email from my son, who was traveling the world at the time. Instead, I found an email advertising a class, Study Hebrew Online. Having never seen such an ad before, I was absolutely amazed. I must tell you, this was in the early days of the Internet. Now there are many of online Hebrew classes, and I encourage you to check them out if you haven't done so already. Well, I forwarded the email to a woman who discussed it with me at Bible study later that week. The pastor overheard our conversation, and he said, Oh, you want to study Hebrew? Why don't you wait a few weeks? We're going to have a class at the church. I was absolutely flabbergasted. I had never been in a church before that taught Hebrew and Greek, so I was very, very blessed and very excited. Needless to say, I enrolled at the first opportunity, which was an introductory course for pilgrims traveling to Israel a few months later. And after the tour of Israel, I entered into a two-year seminary course of Hebrew, where I got to learn the nuts and bolts of the language and came to appreciate it very much in spite of the blood, sweat, and tears that sometimes required to learn it. But my experience with studying Hebrew was that it was fun and it was rewarding. Even learning the alphabet is rewarding. I taught my little grandchildren the alphabet and phonology. They learned it in no time. In fact, I can say I think they learned it faster than I did. The very first Hebrew word I learned was Shabbat. And in this program that I was using, it said that at the conclusion of the lesson, we would be able to read our first Hebrew word. 
And I thought, no way. Well, lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. They had a sounding out, the sound of sha and ba and ta. And then I came to put it all together. Sha, ba, ta. Sha, ba, ta. Shabbat. I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. My grandchildren got it even faster. But it was exciting for me to actually read my first Hebrew word, and I was very grateful to the Lord for giving me this wonderful opportunity. And I hope that uh, you'll take the time to learn a little Hebrew if you haven't done so already. It will make the Bible like a pop-up book for you. I'd love to hear your testimony about how God called you to study Hebrew, or perhaps how you may have been inspired to study Hebrew from today's message. You can contact me at NoreenJacks.com or at BibleInteract.com. I thank you for joining me today for this broadcast. I look forward to being with you again in the future. And until we meet again, I bid you all shalom in the name of Yeshua.